The Charles Adler Show starts now. Max Fawcett of the National Observer. And for anyone that doesn't know what that is, just uh, Google, Bing, doesn't matter to me what search you use, uh, the National Observer, uh, because uh, every single piece is thoughtful. And for some of us who don't get all bent out of shape because of ideology, I, I don't put myself in any of the, the brackets, conservative, progressive, anything. I, I'm just I'm just me. And uh, just being me, I really appreciate people who do their homework, uh, like Max Fawcett, and the kind of analysis they deliver. The, the, the His brain just never, ever stops uh, thinking. So that's the National Observer, where you'll find Max Fawcett, and every now and then you'll find him here on the podcast as well. Max, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Charles. Max, you're based in Calgary, and I, I know that we can discuss this in, in a way that uh, is relevant, not just to Albertans, but to people across the country. We've got uh, different... Um, interest groups, shall we say, who are trying to penetrate school boards. Um, and I don't know if the average person, whether it's an Albertan or anyone else in this country, understands just how vulnerable the school boards are to being penetrated and how much this affects our, our social safety net. Because if you can get into the minds and hearts of children, uh, you can change things. That appears to be uh, what some right-wing activists like David Parker and Alberta, uh, it, it appears to be what they're all about, that they're not exactly, uh, you know, uh, hiding uh, their objectives to dominate, to absolutely run school boards. Why are they doing this? I, they, this is all part of the culture war that, that they feel is, um, you know, they're calling right now. Um, I, I think people like David Parker feel like for a long time, they've kind of been losing the culture war, and part of losing it has been that they haven't contested um, what is going into our our curriculum, our education, uh, as intensely as they should. You know, this has been this has been going on for a while. We saw this under Jason Kenney here, where there was a big uh, kerfuffle around the new curriculum, and and it you know ultimately got sent back to the drawing board because it it was kind of transparently. Um, backwards for lack of a better word you know it it very much sought to teach kids about you know ancient rome and and all these things and was conspicuously quiet about things like you know indigenous reconciliation and the history of canada but you know i think conservatives understand that this is a an important battlefield um in their their ongoing culture war conservative politics right now whether it's in the united states or in canada it's not about lower taxes or smaller government the way it was for most of my life, most of your life, it, it, it really revolves more and more around things like, you know, uh, trans, uh, acceptance, LGBTQ issues, uh, you know, education, schools, uh, the, these really, you know, culture worries things. And, um, if you want to fight that fight, obviously you need to have people in the provincial legislatures and the federal, uh, parliament, but getting them into the local level, uh, and especially into the school boards is a very powerful perch. And it's one that has traditionally, I think, been not depoliticized, but it has not been in, as intensely political as it's about to become. Um, David Parker, the, the head of Take Back Alberta, fancies himself, you know, he's, he's put pictures of Napoleon on his profile. He's used quotes from Napoleon. He really does fancy himself sort of our own little Napoleon. The one thing Napoleon never did was tell the Russians he was going to invade two years before he, he started marching on, on Russia. And he has essentially told progressives in Alberta, come the next you know, municipal election, come the next school board elections, we are coming for you. So progressives have that, you know, the, the, the time until the next elections to get their act together. Um, 
these people that, you know, the David Parkers of the world, they mean what they say. They will come in numbers. And if progressives don't come in the same numbers, they will lose control of those school boards uh, and they will lose control, not necessarily of what's being taught, but of how it's being taught of, of, you know, a lot of little decisions at the school level that can add up to big changes in how kids are educated. Actually, let me take this uh, to the other side of the street. Uh, is there something that progressives are doing inside the various school systems in Alberta and other parts of this country? Is there something that's being injected into the school systems that uh, is making them vulnerable to conservative attack? I'm not, not trying to blame the victim here, but I'm always asking myself, you know, in this, in this uh, to and fro, uh, what's the other side delivering to conservatives? Is there, is there some kind of product that they're putting on David Parker's plate that is so tasty uh, for, for Napoleon, as it were, uh, that he just can't help but bite into it. Yeah, I think there's there's a kernel of truth to what people like David Parker say. You know, I, I think it is true that, um, you know, schools definitely promote a, a message of inclusion, of tolerance, um, of progress, of change. Um, you know, they're trying to educate kids to be part of the world that they're going into, not the world that existed 20, 30, 40 years ago. And a lot of parents find that really threatening. Um, you know, it was ever thus. I, you know, I think back to when I was in high school, um, you could definitely accuse schools of, of, you know, teaching us that it was okay to accept gay people. I don't think anyone thinks that's wrong now. Uh, in, in the same light, I don't think anyone's going to think in 20 or 30 years that it was wrong for schools to teach that it was okay for kids to be trans or to explore their gender identity. But we are in that moment now where it feels scary to a lot of parents. Um, and people like David Parker are very good at weaponizing that fear. Um, you know, it's funny. He would, he, he says so many crazy things on Twitter. It's hard to really pin down just one of them, but what he mentioned something to the effect that, you know, there were uh, Marxists in schools right now that were trying to brainwash your kids. That's not new. Um, when I was in high school, I had social studies teachers who, uh, you know, dabbled in in left wing politics. I, I'm sure it has been that way for a long time. That that's just sort of the nature, especially when you get a social studies teacher. They're going to want to teach kids about everything, not just you know the the orthodoxy of markets and and the the importance of following the rules. You know, sometimes you have teachers that push kids to be uh, uh, a little bit rebellious, and you can't protect kids from from that way of thinking, they should explore it. They should experiment with it, try it out, see if it fits. It probably won't, but um, you know, I think essential to to the worldview that David Parker and and the folks like that are espousing is a fear of of the modern world, a fear of change, and and this idea that you can, if you wall your children away from it, if you put them in private schools, you put them in home schools, if you keep them away from popular culture, you can protect them from. Uh, what do they call it? The woke mind virus. And I hate to I hate to break it to them, but they they have this thing called the internet. The woke mind virus is everywhere, and it's called progress. So uh, let's talk about progress. A parent confronted me the other day because I felt I was uh, too hard on on some of the uh, the conservative activism in the schools, and said, Chuck, if you had uh, you know a seven year old daughter uh, going to to school, whatever public school, private school, religious school, doesn't matter. Uh, it is a seven-year-old daughter in school, and all of a sudden, boys were coming into her washroom because they felt that uh, the 
progressives running uh, the school were now giving them the message if they if they feel like girls they can just use the the girls washroom uh, how would you feel about that I, I thought to myself it, it, it can't be that out of uh, control um, uh, but I don't know for for a fact. I, I don't I don't know what's going on in every single school and every single washroom. I never thought in a million years that I'd be asking this kind of question. Is is it that loose? No, it's not that loose, especially at that age. Um, you know, I, I I think what what folks the fear mongers do is they take you know one example or one sort of reported case of this. You know, I think back to the the litter box example where, you know, p- parents were worried that kids were suddenly like identifying as cats and they had litter boxes in school and what was going on. And I think that happened in one school, maybe somewhere. And it was sort of spun up to be this thing that's in schools everywhere. Um, you know, one thing I know about teachers and I know a lot of teachers, um, good teachers, not so good teachers. They all are careful with kids. They're, they, they're overarching kind of, uh, guiding principle. The reason why they became teachers is to protect kids, keep them safe, help them grow. Uh, They're not careless about this stuff. Um, And so the idea that they're just sort of empowering seven-year-old boys to go into the girls' washroom and, 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 you know, be inappropriate. uh, It's just not how it works. Uh, And, you know, I feel like a lot of folks who are so nervous about what's happening in schools, number one, talk to your kids, ask them, um, but but maybe do a bit of research that isn't coming from people who have a pretty clear agenda where they don't trust public education, they don't support public education, and they want to undermine public education. You know, that's the, the funny thing about these these laws that are being bought, brought in by conservative premiers, uh, where the schools have to tell parents if kids are identifying with a different pronoun. You shouldn't need the schools to dime out your kids. You know, to me, if I needed my school to tell me what was happening with something that central to my kid's identity, I would take that as a failure of my own parenting. Uh, Better than worrying about what people like Ezra Levant or David Parker are saying, just keep the lines of communication with your kids open. Talk to them. Have a seat at the table. Let them feel like they can talk to you as much as they can talk to their teachers. Because if they feel comfortable saying one thing to to, uh, the teachers at school and another thing to you, that's not a great reflection on the, on the, the relationship you have. Well, you know, I'm always trying to put myself in the other person's shoes, in this case, uh, in, a, in a teacher's shoes. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking, you know, if I'm teaching, you know, whether it's grade two, grade three, grade four, whatever, if I'm teaching young children and I'm telling uh, young, young boys that if, if you're feeling like a girl today, um, you know, you can, you, can, you can use the girls. I can't imagine myself saying that because I can't imagine not receiving a bunch of pushback for, from parents questioning my sanity. It just doesn't make sense to me that teachers would be would be doing that. I mean, I'm talking about teachers writ large. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, the 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 note that I always get from my teacher friends is, look, even if we wanted to impose a you know some sort of agenda or you know we wanted to you know brainwash children, we we're too busy to do it. We we are so under resourced right now. You know, some of my friends have upwards of thirty five, almost forty kids in one classroom. Um, you know, they don't have time to prepare for their other classes anymore. Like we've put so much on teachers, especially during COVID. They are frantically treading water, just trying to keep up with the basics of making sure the kids are there, making sure the kids are paying attention, teaching the curriculum, getting them out the door. The idea that they have time for this sort of mastermind, uh, you know, uh, agenda that they're going to implant into these kids' brains, it just beggars belief. These people who are saying this haven't spent 
enough time around real teachers who do real teaching. Um, you know, if, if they have an agenda for these kids, it's that they want them to be accepting of other students, kind to other students and curious about the world. And curious about the world means open to uh, to new ideas. I know that that is scary for some people, that they, they want their kids to kind of just be, uh, you know, little educational widgets or educational robots. But, um, you know, a successful education makes you more open to the world. Um, and maybe there are pluses and minuses to that. But, you know, I just don't, I don't see how it's in the best interest of any kid to, uh, to not get a good education and not be exposed to the world that they're going to have to go live in. Max, are any of the uh, teachers in, in your life uh, talking to you about how difficult it is to have 30, 35, close to 40 kids in a class when several of them aren't able for the most justifiable of reasons, aren't even able to speak the language properly. They've either you know recently arrived in, in Canada, we don't fail anyone, so they just uh, keep going forward in the system regardless of uh, what their language skills are like. Sometimes uh, the uh, tutoring isn't very good on, on on getting people up to speed in terms of uh, language. I'm just wondering if, if that's something that you're getting because that's something I'm getting from, from several teachers, and that one feels real and that one feels important. Yep. Yeah, I had a f- uh, friend of mine who said that uh, they had a kid in their class who came to Canada, I think, a few weeks ago, um, didn't speak a lick of English. Um, and there was no language support in the class. There was no one there helping him, uh, you know, translating, uh, making sure he's understand everything that's happening. And, and this teacher was saying, look, like I, I can tell he's falling behind, obviously, but there's nothing I can do about it. Right there. I have 30, whatever other kids, I have to keep moving forward. I have to keep teaching the, teaching the, the content. So I don't, you know, rather than one kid falling behind, I don't have 35 kids falling behind. Um, so teachers, you know, if we want to talk, if we want to talk about how to protect our kids and do right by our kids and what, what that, how that interacts with, with the public education system, that's, let's have that conversation. But I promise you, it's not about litter boxes and it's not about, about trans kids. It's about, do our students have the right resources in place to help them learn? And do they have enough resources? And everything I'm hearing right now is the answer is no. Um, and that's the real crisis, not whether they're being taught to be open and accepting to, you know, a tiny percentage of the population or not. Here's the question. With the amount of uh, people that we have coming into the country, and that's not changing anytime soon, and we recently heard that there were over 800,000 um, students in this country were considered foreign students. I'm not saying that many or most or even some have children, but the point is that we've got the new Canadians, we've got uh, people who haven't been in the country for very long for all sorts of reasons. Kids are in school. Uh, are we not devoting enough for resources? I'm talking about uh, nationally. Are we not devoting enough for resources to what we used to simply call English as a second language? Because if, if, if people don't even understand the language that's being taught in schools, how on earth are they going to advance as quickly as they should? And how on earth aren't they going to impede the advancement of others? It just makes no sense to me that we don't seem to take English seriously. Yeah, it feels to me a little bit like the federal government kind of stopped after it, you know, it it announced how many people was coming to the country. You know, they, I am very much a supporter of immigration. I think it, it, obviously has built this country. It will be what continues to build it and make it prosperous. There are obvious economies of scale as we get to, you know, 50 million, 60 million people. But if we're not 
helping those people when they come here. If we don't have the supports in place to help them make that transition from wherever they're coming from to to our country, we're setting ourselves up to fail. Uh, we're setting ourselves up to fail because it's going to put pressure on other parts of of society, whether it's the education system, whether it's housing, um, whether it's the labor market, and we're setting them up to fail, right? You know, they come here, the transition isn't as smooth as it could be. Maybe they fall into bad company or bad habits, what have you. And and it's just not a great situation. So it's great. You know, it's nice that we can say that we, you know, we admit uh, more people than, you know, a lot of other countries in the world. And we have a positive attitude towards immigration. But, you know, I've, I've said this, I've written it, that, that attitude is not guaranteed. It is not written in stone. And the more we take for granted the fact that people will be able to make a successful transition, uh, I think the more we put that in jeopardy and, and it just bleeds over into everything. Like you say, it bleeds over into, to our schools, into housing, into, uh, all sorts of places. Um, and it jeopardizes one of the things that I think a lot of people really value about this country. Yeah. I get tired of my own uh, Pollyanna thinking on some of this. I'm an immigrant. I support immigration. We need immigrants. Countries built by me. I, mean, I, I get they get tired of the of, of thinking all of those things only because without supports, what does it matter? Do we have a healthcare system that can accommodate uh, new people? Uh, do we have enough housing to accommodate new people? Do we have enough English uh, as a second language training to accommodate? In other words, if, if we if we don't have all of that, it's pointless to just throw a bunch of uh, feel good nostrums out there about how. You know, we're, we're a country of immigrants. Duh, we are a country of immigrants. Uh, we, well, we can stipulate that, but we need to do more than that. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I think most – the social contract that we have in place around immigration in this country is that um, we support it because it makes this country better and because it makes – it doesn't negatively impact our lives in any meaningful or visible way, right? And I'm sure there are people out there that would get very up uh, upset about that and say, well, that's – you know, that's – racist or, you know it's not just about you it's not just about how it impacts you but from for a lot of people it is right um and we can't ignore the fact that that support for a lot of people is conditional upon it not impacting their kids classes or their kids ability to get a, an apartment or crime or whatever it might be and and if people start making those connections uh between my life getting harder my life getting sort of visibly more challenging and and our immigration policy support for that immigration policy is going to start to drop, um, and you know the the federal government it has to do a better job on. It. There are many areas where it has to do a better job right now, but this is absolutely one of them um, because this sort of stuff is not written in stone, as I said. And I worry that there is a a part of the sort of liberal brain, the campaign brain, that thinks, well, let's let's not worry about this too much because if conservatives complain about it we can turn that back against them and you know we can call them racist we can say they're opposed to immigration i think that would backfire on them but i also think it would backfire on the country um you know right now immigration is is one of these few things where we seem to have a kind of bipartisan tripartisan consensus and if we start to put that into the same space as carbon pricing as um you know uh taxes it, then it becomes politicized and then it's and then it's you know your view of immigration depends on who's in government and which party you support and that's not a good place to be we've seen that in the united states i'd strongly advise uh, any of my uh, liberal friends to not overplay the race card 
Um, if you're gonna if you're gonna give room service to the right on anything, uh, you'll definitely give it to them on that. If um, if I as a Canadian citizen feel that I can't get an apartment, uh, that I can't uh, qualify for anything but being you know number two hundred or number three hundred uh, to to get a, a hip transplant, uh, if uh, if my kid uh, is in a classroom that's too crowded, and if all of this is because uh, immigration levels are not being uh, supported uh, by the other aspects in the social safety net, like education, uh, like housing, uh, like our healthcare system. Uh, so if, if I think that things are out of whack and, and you want to accuse me of being a racist for thinking things are out of whack, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, immigration cannot just be about Canada needs uh, for small businesses and large businesses to have people who will work for next to nothing. And that's why we need immigration. And it doesn't matter whether or not we have supports, because if that's what the immigration piece becomes about, uh, as I say, you're delivering room service to people who are ideologically on the right and actually are, in many cases, racist. Now, more with Charles Adler. Max, uh, let me go to your uh, latest analysis piece, a tremendous piece in the National Observer, uh, connecting the idea of cutting red tape or what the uh, National Conservatives call, uh, what's that word they use, not... uh, Gatekeepers, uh, the gatekeepers. Anyway, uh, yep. c- cutting a red tape, cutting the size of government, and cutting right to uh, the E. coli uh, that has affected hundreds of kids, some of whom are on dialysis right now in, in Calgary. What, what's the connection between the E. coli outbreak and cutting red tape? I, I think there's long been a presumption, uh, certainly it's been presented as a presumption, that you know, there's all these government regulations out there that they just get in the way. And if we would just cut them back, we would, you know, we would save money money for companies, businesses would be more prosperous, and there would be no downside. You know, it's it's a you can have your cake and eat it too here. And we've seen time and time again that that, that isn't true. Um, that when you cut regulations aggressively, when you make cutting regulations the point of the exercise, uh there you get to the, you get to the bone pretty quick and people get hurt you know so we saw this in walkerton uh under mike harris in the 90s where one of the first things they did when they came into power was they uh privatized the testing of muni- municipal water and sure enough a few years later um you get the walkerton e coli outbreak people die and the the public inquiry that gets held into it essentially recommends we need a ton of gatekeepers around this because Drinking water is one of those things where you you don't really want things to be efficient and sort of you know run by the market where they where they are cutting as many corners as they can to be profitable. You want it to be inefficient because inefficient means that if one one level of regulation misses it, the next one will catch it. Right, um, sort of like the Swiss cheese analogy, where yeah. if you have a bunch of pieces of Swiss cheese stacked on top of each other that goes through one hole, it's not going to go through the other hole. So. Uh, you know, we saw that there. We saw it at Lac Megantic again, where you know regulations on the rail industry were inadequate. People died um, mercifully uh, in, in Calgary so far. No kids have died, and thank God for that. Um, but I know talking to parents who you know some of them have kids in these daycares or in daycares that are adjacent, just the worry, the the you know, am I doing the right thing? Uh, what about the food in my um, you know kids' daycare? It really causes some some second guessing uh because you count on government to take care of this stuff you count on government to regulate these sorts of facilities in a way that that's not a thing you have to worry about right that's their job 
And if you look at the, the health inspection reports for this facility in question, over and over again, it got dinged for things uh, that cropped up later. You know, they go one report and say, you know, your dishwasher isn't running hot enough or your hand sanitizer isn't mixed correctly. They come back six months later, the same issue would be there. Um, you know, this was clearly not a facility that was learning, and yet they kept it open. They didn't close it. They didn't tell parents. Um, and so this is this is what happens when you have a government that is obsessed with red tape. You know, the government of Alberta under Kenny came in and and made it uh, not a not a, a goal to make regulations better. I'm fine with that. You know, get rid of things that aren't good and make them better. They made it a goal to reduce the sheer number. Right? We want to cut red tape by one third. We don't care what it is. We just want it gone. And this was, I mean, this was inevitable in some respects. They were, they were going to cut something that they shouldn't have cut and uh, something was going to fall through the cracks. So, you know, whenever a government, whenever a political party tells you that, that it's a free lunch, that we can just cut these regulations and it'll be great for business and you don't need to worry about it, we really need to, you know, uh, ask some tougher questions about what is the purpose of regulation and what is the purpose of getting rid of it? So I want to ask you specifically about housing because uh, we're, we're all being told that uh, the, the housing crisis is what's creating a political crisis for the liberals. And if there's a change of government in a couple of years, it'll be because it'll be because the, uh, the, the federal government hasn't done enough um, to regulate the, the housing market. Now in the, in the world that I, I grew up in, um, Federal government uh, built emergency housing. Federal government uh, built uh, housing uh, for people of uh, uh, low income. Federal government uh, built housing uh, for people coming back from uh, World War II. There were lots of reasons uh, why the federal government got involved in housing to an extent. But I, I never, I never heard of this idea of the federal government creating a policy that would regulate uh, and, uh, I guess, tamp down uh, the free market, the, the housing market. So. Help me understand, uh, Max uh, Fawcett, what government, whether it's a liberal government or a conservative government, what they should be doing long term uh, to create housing affordability. And the immigration piece, I think, has to be part of this. Yeah, so there's two there's two levers here. There's demand and there's supply. And both of them have have um, gotten out of whack uh, on this issue. You know, demand has been sort of supercharged by the number of uh, temporary uh, foreign residents that are coming here, oftentimes under the auspices of getting an education, but really using those educations to get a foothold for citizenship uh, down the road. And of course, you know, they, they bring money into the country to, to, to rent, to buy, to live, and that takes supply uh, off the market. So that's, you know, that's part of the demand side. The other part is, um, you know, foreign investment, which, They've, they've done a pretty good job of cracking down uh, a little bit on in BC and, and markets like that. I think they were late to the game, but they are at least in the game. It's, it's on the supply side that governments have really kind of been asleep at the switch. And, you know, and to some extent, I understand why. Um, prior to COVID, this didn't look nearly as out of control as it is. I mean, I've been complaining about the high cost of housing in Toronto and Vancouver for as long as my most of my friends have known me. Uh, you know, I was predicting a housing crash in Vancouver back in the early 2000s. Shows what I know. Um, but, you know, housing has always been expensive in those, those very desirable markets. What hasn't been the case is that housing has been expensive everywhere, right? And now, you know, housing is expensive in Chilliwack. It's expensive in Port Hope. It's expensive in Truro, Nova Scotia. It's, it's everywhere. And 
the rental market is particularly uh, crazy. You know, I when I moved back to Vancouver in 2015 to become the editor of Vancouver Magazine, uh, I got a one bedroom apartment in the Olympic Village for 1,500 bucks. Right? Wow. Not a big, not a big apartment, but so, you know, it was, it was, it was what fine. What year was that, Max? That sounds, that sounds so cheap. When how long ago was that? 2015. Really? Right. And eight years ago. Now. I mean, I assume it would be at least $3,000, probably more. Um, so, you know, the, to me, the rental market is the one that is the most dire because, you know, you, you don't have to buy. And I've, I've always sort of been an advocate that, that renting can be a pretty smart uh, strategy. But renting is, is disastrous right now because, you know, the rental market, the rental vacancy rates are near zero almost everywhere. Landlords have all the power. Um, and there's just not supply coming on to, to meet this growing surge of demand. So that's where I think the feds really need to focus their attention. Um, they have finally, uh, with waiving the GST on new new purpose-built rentals, that's, you know, I've seen a bunch of developers on Twitter saying, you know, that is immediately transformative. That That takes a bunch of projects they had that didn't make economic sense and puts them immediately into, well, we'll build those right now. But that's going to take years to show up, right? That the, all that supply that is now sort of being brought uh, into play will take a long time. And I, I, you know, in the interim, people are still suffering. Uh, you know, rents are still going to keep climbing. So it's a really tricky uh, political challenge because it it is, you know, like you say, it's unless they dedicate themselves to building wartime housing, um, you know, really kind of like prefab, quick build throw them up and and get them in there there's not going to be a solution that people will see before the next election um part of me thinks that you know that's the bed that the the federal liberals have made for themselves and they're going to have to lie in it one way or the other but um you know the the one thing that's encouraging to me about all this is that everyone finally takes this seriously you know people like me have been kind of writing and talking about housing for a decade now and it's kind of been ignored because most elected officials own their own homes. And so any increase in prices really doesn't seem like a bad thing to them. They now, I think, get it. They get that it jeopardizes their political survival. We saw that in Calgary uh, over the weekend here. You know, There was this um, housing strategy that was brought before council where they're going to get rid of parking minimums and they're going to get rid of uh, zoning minimums, which you know are, they're going to blanket upzone the entire city, which... Uh, that would never have passed six months ago. Um, the the outcry from you know uh, the established neighborhoods and the, the political interests that support them would have been too great, and it just got bulldozed. Um, and it got so bulldozed. By, just so just so I'm clear on this, Max, are you basically yeah. saying that neighborhoods where uh, you only had uh, single family homes like like bungalows or two stories uh, that resisted the idea of uh, condo development, apartment development, are you saying that many of those neighborhoods are are no longer going to be resisting and so a bunch of six-story and maybe 12-story buildings will be going into those areas i'm not even sure they'll be that tall i mean the the it's really more about duplexes and triplexes and things like that but the voices in those communities um used to be uh very very powerful in the city i mean in calgary it took years uh for them to even allow people to have secondary suites in their house because Again, the the sort of vested interests of the single family homeowners uh, didn't want renters in their neighborhoods, and so they fought it for years. 
but what we saw at, at council over the the Friday and Saturday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday was just this alliance of young progressives, old conservatives, the business community, everyone coming to bat and saying, we need this right now. We don't have time for this to listen to, you know, your objections about the character of your community or what it's going to do to that tree down the corner. We need to build more housing right now. And it just got bulldozed. Um, and I think that's deep. That's hugely encouraging. Um, you know, you have a, a situation at the federal level where there is no daylight really right now between Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau on the need for more housing. So, you know, those sorts of situations can really move the the markers on the on the football field quite quickly. And we'll see how far we can get on housing over the next couple of years. Um, but but it's clear that, you know, uh, the sense of urgency has never been greater. So CMHC says that Canada has to build about a half million homes uh, to get a handle on affordability. And right now, I think we're building uh, close to 300,000. I don't know how we can get from 300,000 to 500,000 uh, quickly, but we're also being told that we need to bring in half a million uh, new people a year. That's uh, the immigration number. Is there a way to square the circle? Probably not. Um, you know, there's a, there was a, a note from... Oh, one of the big banks, I want to say it was BMO, but it might have been Scotia. Anyways, their chief economist saying, basically, there's no there's no hope in hell that we're going to meet this target uh, just because of the mismatch between the labor market and the need to build new homes. And, and, and you know, just the math doesn't work. Doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I, I think aspiring to hit that target, just because if we even if we don't hit the target, getting closer will meaningfully help a lot of people. Uh, and the closer we can get, the more people we can help. But I do think there's an opportunity there to kind of align our immigration policy around the needs of, of building all these homes. Uh, you know, we have a shortage of skilled, skilled trades in this country. Uh, we should be trying to bring in as many skilled trades as we possibly can. I mean, look, tech entrepreneurs are great. Um, they create a lot of wealth. Uh, I think everyone wants to have a tech entrepreneur living in their neighborhood. But the truth of the matter is we don't need them right now as much as we need a carpenter or a bricklayer or a drywaller. We, we need those people much more urgently, especially because, you know, a tech entrepreneur is going to come here and bid up housing. Uh, you know, it, it's going to add fuel to that fire. So I do think we should be adjusting our immigration policy to kind of meet the needs of of our, of our biggest need right now, which is housing. And I also think, you know, and God help me, I'm going to sound like a conservative here, but we need to be telling our young people, not that it's better to, to, to get a skilled trade than it is to get a bachelor of, of arts or, or go get a university education, but to tell them you don't need to get a university education. It's not, it's not necessary to be a, to participate in society. And so if you're one of those people who is good with their hands, who loves to build things, who wants to to make a living for themselves that way? We shouldn't. We should be careful that we're not sort of implicitly shaming them away from that choice. Because the truth of the matter is, look, you can do fine as a as a someone who gets a BA. I'm I'm living proof, sort of. Um, but the market right now clearly needs those other skills uh, even more. And so, if that's your passion, you should go pursue it. And I think we should also tell them. And I don't mind sounding like a conservative. Because uh, that's at the core, at the core, of what I am. You know, <laughs> take take the culture war crap out because that's what turns me off about about modern day conservatism. And if there's been a divorce between conservatism and me, it's because of, because I reject the culture war stuff. But as far as um, entrepreneurship and uh, free enterprise, uh, yeah, rah rah rah. And I think that uh, young people ought to be taught that if you want to have an independent life, you want to be able to work for yourself, 
the best way and fastest way to do that is to learn a skill. Uh, there is absolutely nothing wrong with plumbing, with carpentry, with masonry. I could go on and on and on. The fact is the people who have those kinds of skills are the people uh, who have the easiest access to capital to create small businesses and run their own lives. Absolutely. I mean, it, you know, not that not that I would, you know, go back to high school and do it all over again. I would become a plumber because I'm terrible with that stuff. It's just not in me. But, you know, I remember when I was doing newspaper stuff in a, in a small town in northern BC and I had a, a, a mom come talk to me and said, you know, my son wants to ask you a question. He's curious about what he should do with his life. And I was like, I'm not sure I'm the guy to ask, but sure, I'll, you know, I'll answer. And he said, you know, I'm thinking of going and becoming a plumber. Uh, do you think I should go get a university education? And I said, look, you know, I was 29 at the time, you know, I'm up here in, you know, Chetwin, BC, uh, working as a, you know, the editor of a community newspaper. I'm having a great time, but let me tell you about my friend in high school who, uh, didn't go to university, became a plumber. He owns three houses now, (laughs) right? So if you love plumbing, uh, don't let anyone ever tell you that it's not the thing to do. And like you said, yeah, you, if you want to be free, if you want to be able to travel, live anywhere you want, uh, set your own hours, get a skilled trade uh, because the demand for that stuff isn't going anywhere. Uh, AI can't replace it. Uh, you know, you're, you're kind of bulletproof on that front. So, uh, you know, that, that's one of those things where uh, I guess I, do, I depart from the, the conventional wisdom of my tribe. Appreciate it. Uh, appreciate it every time you do uh, depart from the conventional wisdom because uh, that's what makes your toolkit interesting. Thanks for bringing it to us again. Max Fawcett of the National Observer. Anytime, Charles. Max Fawcett is based in Calgary. I appreciate everyone who is uh, getting online with us. Uh, subscribe, follow the Charles Adler Show podcast. Go to your favorite platform, uh, Spotify, Apple, Google, you name it. Thank you. I'm Charles Adler. Catch Charles Adler Mondays on Real Talk with Ryan Jesperson, twice a week in the Winnipeg Free Press, and every day at criermedia.co.